Hi and welcome back. This is Police Stories Podcast, episode 31. A series of short stories about my 28-year career in the UK police force. Firstly, an apology from me. Um, The sound quality last week was very bad. Um, Normally I listen to it before it goes out, but I didn't. I just uploaded it um, and then listened to it later and then... uh, yeah, it wasn't ideal. Sound was a bit rubbish. I'm sorry. There was a few crackly noises and off-putting bits. So that's uh, that's my fault. And I'm trying to get it right. Um, I try and record in all sorts of glamorous places. I think I said before, in my caravan, etc. That sometimes works quite well. But the moment it starts to rain, we have an issue. Um, I'm currently sat in um, a conservatory at home with a blanket over my head because it's blowing an absolute hoolie outside. This is the second of uh, the big major storms that the UK is having at the moment, very high wind. So I'm trying not to pick up, um, you know, all the wind noise outside. It's it's dead glamorous, this podcast stuff, you know. Um, I'm sure there is a solution and it probably is throwing hundreds of pounds at, you know, studios and microphones and that. But, you know, I'm not making anything from this, so... It's, uh, I'm trying to do the best I can, so you'll have to bear with me. Anyway, so that's that out of the way. So, episode 31, it's a continuation of ARVs. We talked about armed response vehicles last week and um, how much I enjoyed them, really. Um, and this story is probably the joint biggest um, job of my career, for sure. Um, now, there's a chance that this might split into two episodes on this one incident, depending on how it goes time-wise and the detail that we get into. Um, you do know that I love a tangent. I quite often run off uh, somewhere and to start talking about, you know, something else. <laughs> but um, hopefully that's what makes it interesting. So we're basically going to have to play it by ear and just see how this goes. Um, it won't be because I'm trying to keep you on a cliffhanger or I'm trying to be clever and keep you coming back or whatever. It's just simply that I'm trying to keep these two around about half an hour just because I think, that's quite a decent time. You know, if you listen to a podcast when you go for a dog walk or you're working out in the gym or, you know, your journey to work or whatever, it's not too long. It's not too short. So let's just see how it goes. So this instance today, then, um, I've been on ARVs at this point a couple of years. So again, not vastly experienced, but I had had a reasonable amount of experience at this point and I'd been to quite a few jobs. And certainly by now there was, I think if you remember, I said that I was one of the first uh, people that I was the first um, uh, group that set up ARVs armed response vehicles within the force I was in at the time. Um, we'd been taken from this pool of armed officers that were working at Gatwick and now we were helping uh, sort of set this up um, and it seemed to be working okay but two years in you know we'd had kind of second maybe third wave of people you know new people coming on that we needed to replace because that's the thing about the police you know there's this constant flow of people not only do the people move on, you know, for promotion, people retire, you know, people just decide for whatever reason they've had enough of um, a certain role. So they, you know, they move on elsewhere. You know, that is the great thing about the police. And one of the things I particularly enjoyed about it, you know, I rarely stayed anywhere more than kind of five-ish years before I moved on and, and found, you know, a new role. Um, and I was quite lucky, you know, I did a lot of variety of roles, although I think I said before, though I say lucky, you know, these specialist roles, none of them come looking for you, you know, you have to apply and then there's potentially quite an involved uh, process to go through um, to then, you know, be selected. So it didn't necessarily come easy. Anyway, um, 
the team I was on, there was various people that I worked with and we rotated around. You didn't have like, it's not like on the telly where you have like a set partner and you become best of friends with them. You know, there was a team of maybe 10 or 12 of us and we rotated round. You know, there was no sort of favouritism and, you know, you just work with whoever. You know, might you might have a run of a week, for example, with people. But again, by the time people are off sick on courses, annual leave or whatever, you know, you just can't work with the same person all the time. So it does, um, yeah, very much sort of rotate. And again, that, that kept it interesting, to be honest with you, because um, I was very lucky my team were good and I got on well with all of them. But certainly... You know, I know that other people perhaps, you know, there's you always have favourites and there's people you, you perhaps prefer to work with. Uh, and if you got, you know, somebody that you weren't so keen on and then you got stuck with them for sort of six months or something, that would be hard, I'd imagine. So, but that never really happened to me. So on this particular day, I was crewed up with a guy and let's call him Alan. It's not his real name, but, you know, to protect his identity, we'll call him Al. And... Um, Al had just done his ARV course, so he'd done, um, and at that point, I think, rather than being like me, he'd been an AFO to start with, an, an authorised firearms officer, and done his two-week course and then did a four-week uh, ARV course, I think by this point, you had the ability to come straight on from sort of scratch, uh, having never picked up a gun, to six weeks later, you know, you're uh, an ARV officer, and it worked quite well, to be honest with you, um, there was quite a few military that worked with us, but again, I think we've talked about before, that's sometimes not ideal because military way of dealing with uh, things, you know, and in terms of um, when and when not to fire and also, you know, police is all about single aim shots, whereas military, you know, laying down, covering fire, putting, you know, a burst of fire and all that, it just doesn't happen in the police. So sometimes it's easier for instructors to train people that have never picked a gun up, you know, than trying to sort of remould military types Um into the police way of thinking but but generally you know uh, by the by it worked pretty well so Al had just done his course he'd done his six-week course and he was starting with me um, as his very first ARV shift and what a shift it was going to be um, as you'll see so we were working out uh, to the east of our county that night and at this point I th- I think we'd either armed up over the east or we might have collected weapons and things from a central location and then driven out that way. Um, But either way, we found ourselves out, um, right out on the edge of our county, um, which meant that we were probably a good 45 minutes drive, should we need backup, in terms of armed backup. You know, there was obviously normal cops going about their daily work and and doing stuff, and we, we would back them up. We've talked about this before, you know, if they had a a fight or a domestic or something that was getting violent, they need assistance, absolutely we would go. But uh, in the main, um, as we were armed all the time, certainly with a handgun all the time, you know, they'd be loath to send us um, into a pub fight, you know, straight off. Um, and generally we would carry the handguns all the time. We had what's called a standing authority for that. So um, we didn't need authority to self-arm to be able to use that pistol um, or deploy that pistol ourselves, but generally it was only in set circumstances. And some of those might be, let's say we're driving along the high street and an armed robbery that we know nothing about, you know, sort of spills out in front of us and a guy comes running out with, you know, a handgun, he's just robbed the bank. Well, that's the scenario where we could self-arm, we wouldn't need extra authority. You know, we carried the handguns and we could draw those weapons and deal with that just off our own back, you know. And that was something that we trained for and were expected to do, you know. Um then the long guns, as they were called, so in this case it was the MP5s, um, 9mm MP5s that were kept in a safe within the vehicle 
and that also held our batten gun, which was the uh, fires the big sort of rubber bullets, uh, a less than lethal option. Um, we still didn't have tasers at this point. Uh, we had the batten gun, and we had the long guns, the MP5s, with extra ammunition carried in the safes, and also we talked about stun grenades last week. They were carried. Um, in in the safe as well you know and that was sort of bolted into the car with a combination on it so we would only draw those extra weapons if we received an authority from uh, a silver commander which was a silver firearms commander who would receive advice from a tack out a tactical advisor he would tell us um, i've given you armed authority we would open the safes get the long guns out and then arm up and do whatever tactics was meant to be appropriate very difficult sometimes to for that to be managed locally so a lot of the time you know once you had your authority, you know, there would be a tactic agreed. But this is all kind of nice and slow time. You know, the job we had on this night developed quite quickly. So um, we found ourselves in the in this coastal town um, in the UK and we were just, you know, doing our normal patrol stuff. If there wasn't an armed job, we'd be driving around and uh, maybe, you know, stopping cars or, you know, maybe stop searching people if we'd found them in the right circumstances, you know, early hours of the morning. It was a night shift. We'd driven round. We'd already had our refs, as we talk about, which are our refreshments. So we had our food and it was the early hours of the morning. Um, in fact, no, no, I'll tell a lie. It was earlier than that. It was it was maybe midnight or something like that. Yeah, midnight, half midnight. Um, so uh, not an awful lot going on this night. It was a weekday. And the first call came in, we were in this, uh, or we were just on the periphery of the sort of town centre, and the first call came in, and it was reports of a male armed with a rifle. That was the very first call. So, of course, immediately our ears pricked up. It's not the sort of call you get every day, um, particularly as he was meant to be in the street. Now, I have to say, and we've talked about this before as well, that there's there's quite a few calls that come into the police that uh, some you know we get false calls obviously we get the local kids calling up to say oh there's a fire or someone's just been stabbed and you turn up and you know there's a group of kids standing around laughing because they think it's great fun that you know you've turned up there on blue lights um and you also got a lot of well-intentioned calls so somebody sees something and then you know with the best of intentions ring us up and say I've seen a guy with a gun, you know, or I've seen something, you know, whatever it is, happen. Um, and when actually you get there and check it out, it's nothing like they've said at all. But, you know, the intentions were there. So we would always thank them and and say to them, no problems at all. You know, it's a totally genuine call. And, we, and we'd rather have a call from you, get there and find out that actually it's not what you thought, than not have the call at all and we miss something terrible. <clears throat> Excuse me. So this first call that came in, mail the rifle... And immediately Al, you know, my, my shiny new crewmate had just come off his course, who'd not had a live arm job yet, his ears pricked up immediately. And he was like, oh, do you hear that? You know, I was like, yeah. Um, he said, what do you think? I said, well, you know, there's loads of things to think at this point. We won't get too excited at this point. But we'll start to just uh, drive towards the neck, towards the police station, just in case, you know, this was to develop. It's always nice to be able to arm up. Um, and get the long guns out and things in the backyard of a of a nick rather than doing it on the street when you tend to attract a lot of attention, you know, and, and uh, this was the days before really people sort of habitually got out mobile phones to record everything, but it's just nicer to do it on your own terms. So we started um, heading back towards the police station, which was about a 15-minute drive, and en route there was a second and third call came in, very similar to the first, but importantly, totally independent. So it wasn't the same person ringing back two or three times. 
this was a new person on each time saying, I've seen a male with a gun in the street. And some descriptions started coming in of the weapon as well. So it was a bit more distinct. A couple of them said like assault rifle, you know, so it wasn't just a gun, a big black gun, you know, it's a bit more descriptive. So it was, um, seeing a guy walking down the street seems to have some sort of assault rifle, um, you know, but then I was scared. So I kind of, you know, closed my curtains and, and ignored him. Uh, and they said he seems to be heading into the area of the train station. This town had two or maybe three train stations, and one of them was uh, kind of a little bit out of the town centre, and that's the one that they said he was heading in the direction of. So I said to Al, you know, that, right, this is developing a bit now. That, you know, we might actually get a job out of this. Uh, and he was very excited, you know, because as an armed officer, you you do want to be deployed to something. It's like soldiers you know I was very briefly in the army myself it wasn't really for me but you know soldiers I would say generally want to be deployed you know in a war zone because I think there's this need to and this is just my own belief um, you kind of want to test out what you've been trained for you know that certainly years ago there were soldiers that went through an entire you know 25 year career and never ever got deployed I always think that they perhaps would have preferred and and people will be going that's ridiculous there's a chance you could be shot or killed or whatever yes there is you know but certainly from my own point of view as well I would have hated to be an armed officer and never been deployed you know to an armed job because you kind of want to test yourself out so um sure enough Steve you know very first night uh his shift uh he wants to come out uh and and test his ability so uh, what happened was, yeah, went back to the, the, the police uh, station and um, we basically awaited, awaited to see what would happen. Now, at this point, they're not sending um, any sort of um, police officers at all to this job. You know, no unarmed officers would go near this job because what happens is it immediately gets fired up to this sort of central control room and then you would get... Um, an inspector initially as like a duty inspector who runs the control room and he or she will look and listen at this job and then they will start probably taking tactical advice initially as to whether this is a, a spontaneous firearms incident which is what they're quite often calling the police I'm sure different forces call them different things but um, it was very apparent because by now I think we were five or six calls in um, to different people, independent witnesses, saying they'd all seen a male with a large black gun, an assault rifle, you know, a machine gun, all those sorts of variations. They were coming in and all from the same place. So this isn't going to be a moody call. You know, this is clearly something genuine. Um, so it very quickly passed to um, a silver firearms commander who will make the ultimate decision and then on to um, a TACAD, so a tactical advisor. They get their heads together look at the information and say, yes, this is a spontaneous firearms incident. So sure enough, we get the call, we're back at the nick, and they say, um, I am going to give you authority, tactics to be decided, I want you to arm up with the long weapons um, and await further instruction. So sure enough, myself and Al, we, um, we're already there, we get the long guns out, I'm driving, so generally, initially, I would stick with... Um, just my pistol um but what happened was steve uh got an mp5 out for me which i loaded and made ready so uh put a magazine in it and cocked the weapon made sure that safety catch was on safe but that weapon is ready to go now all i've got to do is flick the safety to fire and pull the trigger and it'll go bang 
Um, that was carried in a bag, but directly behind my seat so I could access it very, very quickly. Um, Steve got the baton gun out and initially went with the less than lethal weapon because you always have to have this less than lethal option. The person could present with a knife, you know, and I may not be able to justify shooting him. And therefore it would be Steve's uh, responsibility to deal with it um, <clears throat> with, you know, with the, with the, the baton gun. So, sorry, I keep getting my, my names mixed up here. Al, it's Alan. Um, for some reason, I keep calling him Steve. I don't know why. Uh, so, what happens? We So, Al is, is armed up and he's ready to go. Um, and then uh, we're sat there and we're waiting for the instructions. So, the next instruction that comes through is to move closer to uh, the location. Don't commit to it. Don't go to it. Um but just, you know, we're armed, move into the area so that we're very close should we need to deploy, you know, or while they are deciding what tactics to use. Uh, and at the same time, um, a, a plain armed car that consisted of three armed officers, but in plain clothes, SFO, specialist firearms officers, that were based centrally, are now uh, en route to us on blue lights and heading out as well. They might not be needed, but, you know, we're definitely going to have them uh, should we need them because, uh, well, the more the merrier, quite frankly, because at the moment we're, we're only two armed officers, you know, and that is not many to deal with a suspect. It doesn't give you a lot of options, especially if this person's not going to comply or kick off. So um, so we moved closer and we waited and more and more calls come in. And now, interestingly, um, about the seventh call we got was from a male claiming to be the one that all the calls had been about. And, and the call went something like this. He, he calls up and he says to the control room, I've got a weapon. I've got, um, and he named the weapon, he called it a Galil, I believe, which is an Israeli sort of standard issue um, assault rifle. Um, and he said that um, I used to be in the armed forces. I've stolen this weapon um, from the army. Uh, and then he says, I have hundreds of rounds on me. Um, I've got plenty of spare ammunition. Um, you're going to need to send armed officers to deal with me. And then he goes on to explain that uh, about three weeks previous to that, he'd been in the town centre and he'd been stabbed by somebody in an argument about whatever. I don't think he went into why, but he was stabbed three weeks prior. He said, so he got this weapon and he was going to go and settle some scores. And, that you know, they definitely needed to send armed officers to deal with him. So all of this was adding up to quite a nasty little job, really. You know, we were there with authority. We got a guy that's telling us he's got a weapon. He's in the area. He's kind of armed and dangerous very much and that he wants armed cops sent there. Now, we've talked before about death by cop and suicide by cop, and that's effectively when somebody has a weapon, whether it's real or not, and deliberately points it at armed cops, knowing almost for sure that uh, he's going to be shot. So rather than commit suicide, he forces the armed officers to do it for him. The problem is, we're, it's something we're aware of. You know, it's something we know happens, but you can't really change that. If you're an armed officer and you go to a scene, you know, where there is meant to be somebody carrying a firearm and he or she raises that and points it at you, you know, almost certainly there is only one decision you're going to take and that is to pull the trigger. So it's a really difficult one because... If you then find out the weapon isn't real, you know, it does put you in a bit of a different, a difficult position and a, and a difficult mindset because, you know, you might have to take that person's life. And that's perhaps what they intended all along. 
But obviously no one wants to kill someone and that's potentially what you're being forced to do. But these are the risks of becoming an armed officer. These are the things that you have to think about prior to starting this role. And it's very clear, you know, what this role is going to involve. It's not like it's a shock when you go, what? You know, I'm not facing armed people. That's really dangerous, you know. It's very clear. And by the time you get to this point, having had the training you had, you'll have a pretty good idea of what's going to happen. Now, for me personally, I always hoped that if I had to shoot someone, it would be very black and white. You know, lots of people have had really sort of grey shootings in the, you know, they whip something out of their pocket. We talked about one last week, you know, a guy had a chair leg wrapped in a plastic bag, which he raised up and, and pointed at cops. And cops had been told he had a gun, he had a sawn-off shotgun. So he got shot. You know, it's a bit of a difficult one. And I always hoped that if it had to happen, it would be really straightforward. It would be very obviously a gun or what looked like one. And it would be pointed at me. None of this kind of, you know, fast draw and uh, decisions to be made. You know, selfishly, I wanted an easy decision should I have to be in that position. But like I said... I didn't want to be, and no one I ever worked with did. So anyway, the, this continues to develop, and now we are told we haven't got time to wait for the SFOs because potentially you've got you know an armed guy walking around with members of the public who have no protection at all. That is what we were there for. We cannot hold off and wait. And you see this a lot in sort of school shootings in America. I know there's one fairly recently that's happened at that armed cops you know hold off and hold outside a school and and don't go in and deal with it um, well that's fine if you know there's no one in there but if you've got someone rampaging around with a gun you know we are the armed police we have to deal with it because if we don't deal with it who else is going to do you know what i mean it's it's an unpleasant thing but bottom line is someone has got to go and deal with it and Normally, in virtually every police role, there's backup available. You know, no matter what you do, there'll be backup and there'll be a specialist team that comes to help you. Well, there's a realisation that you are the specialist team. No one's coming to help you. You're an armed cop. You are armed and you've got to deal with it. And that's kind of where we were at on this occasion. So we were sent down to the scene initially. So um, by this time, I'd put my MP5 on on the strap around my shoulder and I had it in my lap. We had folding stocks so I could fold the stock and make it quite small. But remember this weapon's loaded, made, ready and I've got it either slung across my chest or um, in my lap and ready to go. Now, one thing I will say is we didn't have seatbelts on either. We'd taken those off at this point. And the reason I'm saying that is because when you've got body armour on and the adrenaline's high, it's very easy to forget to take your seatbelt off because we're so sort of you know brainwashed aren't we to wear a seatbelt and on many occasions armed cops have turned up for something intending to spring out of the car and be very dynamic and shout and point guns and all the rest of it only to find that they look an idiot as they crack open the door try to leap out to find that they're still seat belted in and yeah it ends up becoming a bit of a farce quite frankly so I was absolutely adamant that you know was not going to happen to me. So we turned up at this scene and it's set on a steep hill and there's an alleyway that leads down to the train station. Um, We spoke to a member of the public and they said, yes, I've seen him. I've seen the guy with a gun. It's a big gun, bigger than the guns you've got. And I don't think this was a size issue, but she was just pointing out that, you know, it's a big gun, big black gun. 
Um, bearing in mind now we're about half past midnight and it's pitch black. There's street lights, but you know, the lighting is fairly poor. And she says, I've seen him walk down that alleyway there. And this alleyway I knew led direct to the platform at the train station. Now the trains thankfully were off, you know, there was no trains on. Um, but we hadn't seen anyone at that point at all. Only what this, this woman had told us. So we had a little look around. Obviously, we're reporting all this back as we go along um, to the sort of superiors um, and to the, the silver and the TACAD. Myself and Al are out, knowing that we're by ourselves, but also, for me, feeling confident that I could deal with whatever came up because, we, you know, we did have what we needed to. So this um, alleyway was about... 50 to 75 meters long I'd say around about 150 foot long maybe um, very narrow chain link fence on either side and it led down to the car park now as we're talking about this about probably half an hour has passed since we deployed to the uh, the edge of, of the scene of the location so bearing in mind we've got uh, SFOs, you know, three cops in a plane car zooming towards us at breakneck speeds on blue lights. So we know they're going to be with us fairly soon. So at the time, we were just eyes and ears, really. We didn't really want to commit to going down and deal with him by ourselves, as our backup now is fairly close. But equally, we needed to be there because should this guy suddenly take the decision to start firing shots, then, you know, somebody had to deal with him. So that's why we were there, really. But I must admit, I was also, you know, relatively inexperienced and was quite looking forward to the big boys turning up, you know, the ones that actually knew what they were doing, or that's what I felt at the time. Uh, so sure enough, another sort of five or ten minutes passes, and thankfully, plane car comes screaming around the corner. Obviously, he's turned off his blues and twos way off, uh, turning up to us so that we don't alert the guy, although he must have been pretty clear that we were there at this point, because bearing in mind, he'd also phoned us. So they turned up, we had a quick brief, quick chat, decided the roles. One of the SFOs had a, um, a baton gun as well, and it was decided that he would be our main less than lethal. We had a police dog turning up. The only thing was a firearms dog wasn't available. Now, this isn't a dog you know, that carries a gun with him. This is a specially trained police dog that works with um, armed officers. And the main difference being they will attack on command. So your average police dog, you know, if it goes to a riot or to someone mouthing off or whatever and they're in the street shouting and bawling, it will attack them if it needs to, to, to basically apprehend them, you know. It will bring them down, hopefully by the arm, but it quite frankly it could be by the groin, by the, you know, the face, you know, whatever they can get hold of. They're a bit um, indiscriminate, which is sometimes what makes them so good. But a firearms dog, if you have someone there standing really quietly and not sort of kicking off, that dog, that firearms dog, Trojan dog, as sometimes they're called, can be directed onto the suspect to bring them down, even though they're standing there quietly doing nothing. And you might think, well, that's out of order. Why are you bringing them down? But, you know, you will uh, see exactly why it's useful uh, in a couple of seconds. So what happened was we were stood there on this alleyway, and I looked down the alleyway, which, remember, is poorly lit, and in the distance I can see a male. So we take up positions behind hard cover, we're semi behind like brick walls and I think there was a, um, a post box there which are very heavy metal um, that you can sort of get behind. So you're trying to make yourself as small a target as possible. 
this male walked up and as he walked up towards us, we could see he was in, a, we would call it like a low port position. He clearly had a very large assault rifle and it looked to me like an, an M16, an AR-15, something like that, if that means anything to you. And But he was pointing it at the ground. He was not pointing at us and that's a really important point. Um, so he slowly advanced quite calmly, not making any noise, not shouting or swearing, just walking towards us at the top of the hill. Now, it's very clear who we were. You know, we were some in uniform, some not. We all had police hats on. Um, we were all very clearly armed with long weapons or, or baton guns. And what happened was um, he walked up towards us. Now, the range on the baton gun is about 25 metres, um, which is quite close. But, you know, it keeps someone at a distance should they want to approach you with, you know, a bat or a knife or something like that. Or you need to drop them, basically, but without a conventional firearm. So that was the range. Now, as he walked up towards us, there was a lamppost about 25 metres down this hill. And the guy who had the baton gun said, that's my line in the sand. Now, because we'd all trained with each other and the baton guns, we knew what he meant. That was the point that if he carried on walking towards us, but didn't present a firearms threat. Now, you might say he, he is a firearms threat. He's got a gun. Well, yes, but he's not pointing at us. So at this point, he's not getting shot with conventional weapons. The line in the sand is conveniently a dog poo bin that was attached to this lamppost. I always remember it, bizarrely. Um, and the guy that had the baton gun said to me, line in the sand, and to the rest of the team, dog poo bin. If he comes past that, I'll be shooting him with a baton gun. You know, if he continues to not do what he's told, because at this point we're screaming and shouting at him, arm police, drop your weapon, show us your hands, put the weapon down, you know, and lots of things along those lines. But he just wasn't angry, he wasn't shouting, but he was walking up towards us with this weapon. So, of course, all sorts of things race through your mind. Why is he doing this? Um, and ultimately, we don't know. But the decision was made, if he got within 25 metres, he was going to get shot with a baton gun, and that hopefully would allow us to go forward or possibly the police dog because by now the police dog is with us and it's going crazy beside us because you know anytime you shout around a police dog they start to get a bit rolled up but remember not firearms dog so he closes us down and he gets closer and closer and he gets to about 30 meters away and so just past the line in the sand or just out of range of the baton gun continues to point the weapon at the ground, doesn't point it at us, doesn't speak to us, doesn't engage, doesn't shout, just stands there and stops. And I was thinking that is typical. He's just out of the range. So now we're in this bit of a, um, you know, standoff, bit of a Mexican standoff, literally, you know, what are we going to do with this guy? So we tried to engage with him. He wouldn't have it. A decision had to be made. You know, we had to move this forward some way. We weren't going to stand there forever. This is still potentially an armed suspect, you know, with members of the public walking around behind us, or, or could be. There actually wasn't anyone about because of the time of day, but, you know, all the shouting we were going to do, and it was only a matter of time before it brought people out. So what are we going to do with this guy? Well, as we're 31 minutes in, and I'm trying to keep these to half an hour-ish, what we'll do is we'll stop there. Now, I know possibly you're now very frustrated, and I apologise, but you're going to have to wait a week, and we'll look at episode two, um, and we will see where this goes. Thanks very much for your time. I hope the sound quality has been all right this week, and thanks for coming back and listening. Uh, good downloads this week, and continue to 
pass on to friends or anyone you think might be interested, Police Stories Podcast. As you know, we're on all the Spotify's and Audible's and pretty much everywhere, and also on YouTube, Police Stories Podcast, if you want to listen there. So thanks very much. Take it easy. Have a good week, and I'll speak to you soon. Cheers. Bye.